Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 28th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. For the full hour, we'll hear from Dr. John Cobb. We'll be right back. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to this special podcast recorded on March 2nd, 2022. My guest for the full program is Dr. John Cobb, process theologian and leading affiliate of the Living Earth Movement, a movement initiative that was launched last month at his 97th birthday, in fact. My guest, Dr. John Cobb, was born in Japan in 1925 as Methodist missionary parents served in the U.S. Army from 1943 to 1946 as a Japanese language officer. He entered the University of Chicago in January of 1947, studying philosophy and philosophical theology. Dr. Cobb has taught at Emory University and Claremont School of Theology and Graduate School. His understanding of the world as made up of interconnected events led him to explore a variety of topics from his process perspective. Process theology is what we are going to certainly have him completely explain for us here. This emphasis here is on interconnectivity. He wrote a number of books in partnership with scholars in various fields, especially biology, economics, and the New Testament, and he's written, edited, and co-authored more than 50 books. His leadership in process thought was solidified in 1973 with David Griffin. He organized the Center for Process Studies. It published a journal and held conferences in many fields. It worked internationally, and by far its greatest success was in China under the leadership of Zihi Wang, with Dr. Cobb's support, the China Project became the Institute for the Postmodern Development of China. It sponsored hundreds of lectures in China and 35 Chinese universities established related centers. The Chinese government declared its goal to be an ecological civilization. So the IBDC, the Institute for the Postmodern Development of China, in Claremont, the first conference on this topic and followed with annual events attracting from 50 to 100 participants from China. During this time, Dr. Cobb was also annually visiting China and he became well known there. He's welcomed by Chinese leaders, including the vice president. Dr. Cobb, who's going to cover all of these connections with us and our time together, comes today from his residence in Claremont Welcome to the special Ask a Leader podcast, Dr. John Cobb. Thank you. Well, first, because all of us practically are not well informed about what is actually process theology, could you explain what it is, sort of put it in perspective, what its origins have been, and where it is practiced? And we'll get to how we can recognize this in leadership around the world. Yes, okay, 
what I learned when I was a student at the University of Chicago, and I don't mean that, that, that everybody there was this way, but I, that's what I picked up very strongly, was that the uh, basic assumptions of modernity were inadequate and misled people. For example, the um, modern science developed by denying that purpose plays any role in the natural world. And uh, I think purpose plays a role in all living things. And that's one of the reasons we've gotten into trouble in our relationship with the natural world is that we don't allow purpose, that purpose that involves meaning of any kind, really value of any kind, to play a role in the natural world. We separate ourselves from the natural world. So there's a deep tendency in modernity to put human beings at the center and then simply see nature as a place that gives us the resources to do the things that we want to do. We conquer nature and exploit nature rather than recognize that we are part of nature. And uh, another part of the way in which the modern world developed was around the idea that there are individual entities uh, philosophically, we call them substances that simply exist in and of themselves and then are related to each other externally. So the model of, of the natural world has often been the billiard balls bump, bumping into each other. That is, the, we picture the balls as being unaffected by their relationships but the, their relationships determine their motions. They bump into each other. And so matter in motion has been a common way of thinking of how we are to explain everything. And uh, process thought thinks that the world is made up of events, of happenings, occurrences. And every occurrence is a, synthesis of all the occurrences that, of aspects of all the occurrences that happened before. But it is a synthesis. So it is creative. The world is made up of events, each of which is a self-creation out of all the other events. So everything is very closely interconnected, not in an external way. That is, if we just look at ourselves, I am what I am by having appropriated so much from so many other people. I don't exist as something separate from all of that. I exist by virtue of having done something with all of those contributions of others. And uh, uh, this makes a difference when we think of uh, economics, for example. No, homo economicus, I think you've probably heard that language, is a completely separate individual whose natural tendency is to acquire as much as possible of goods and power 
like one of those billion balls, it is external to every other person. And we think that that leads to a great emphasis upon competition and very little emphasis upon cooperation. And we think it's much better if we think of ourselves as persons in community. And we are benefited when the community in which we live is healthy. A child who grows up in a home in which each person is competing with all the other members is not going to be a happy child or well-developed child. If a child that knows it is loved and loves all those who are around it, even if they're economically not too well off, can often be a very happy child and one who has a useful life, meaningful life. So the process approach leads to different values. And we, we think that the modern world has, I mean, no, I think everyone believes that there are purposes, that purpose is a very important part of life. But to have an educational system that teaches you that it doesn't, I think is not healthy. And um, the, the question of whether life is meaningful is a real question for lots of people. But if you understand that you are part of something much larger than yourself, that if you play your role in that, it will go better. And that it supports you and you can gain greatly from it you're not doubtful about the meaningfulness of life. So those are some of the differences. Uh, the term process, of course, suggests constant change. And we think that every moment is different from every other moment. No two events are the same. So, so Dr. Cobb, that, I want to take up the feature of your long view having lived these 97 years in a moment but first i just can't help but imagine you at the university of chicago where the chicago school of economics is world renowned and i think that has led a lot of western thinking and beyond in the trap of present value and so when you're talking about process and all the elements and consideration and process that I, I guess to sort of reduce it into a shorthand, I can compare the process equation is a much more expansive equation than the economic present value equation. Yes, the value in, in for the economists is measured entirely in money. And of course, I don't think any of us really believe that money is the most important thing, but our society believes it's the most important thing. And uh, that when, when you measure everything in money, it does become competitive. Each person trying to get as much of that as possible, that means someone else won't get it. It's, it's built into it. Right, the zero sum. But I bring that up a great deal and call it out because it's so limiting. But I'm just imagining you as a young man at the University of Chicago, how you could sort of look beyond that immediate culture and have your more expansive thinking. That kind of work in process is really a phenomenal thing to think about. Was that hard? 
Well, of course, I was, uh, I went there very naive. I, I mean, philosophically naive. I hadn't really studied any, any philosophy. And I was very fortunate that one of my teachers was Charles Hartshorn, who was very explicit about thinking of the world as made up of events rather than of material objects. And of course, it turns out that uh, even in physics, we've sort of won the battle, but not the war. That is, the world of quantum thought it is simply not a world of objects in motion. It's a world of events. And the quantum world is the, is the grounding of all the other things that go on in science. So people were at that time just barely beginning to have some vague notion about the quantum world, but that was today, sadly, many physicists just sort of dismiss quantum as queer and just, but it's, it's foundational. So I, I, this is metaphysics and most Americans are rather quick to turn away if you explicitly say, I have a metaphysical criticism. <laughs> well, they don't have to do with it. It's just too, um, it's, it doesn't have the kind of frame that they, they can accept, they can embrace. It, it turns out that if you speak an Indo-European language, the subject of the sentence is going to always be something. And um, even if it's uh, hard to say what the thing is, we treat it as a thing. For my Chinese friend says that when there's rain, we say it is raining. And uh, if someone says, well, what is the it? They can't give any answer, but that's just the way our language makes us think. David Bohm was a very important quantum physicist and he said that the only way we had a chance of understanding better is if we use gerunds. Raining is happening. That he didn't think we would ever understand the quantum world if we use nouns, because the noun suggests some entity that exists and the same noun can be the subject of many sentences. That leads us to think in the way that ends up in modern economic thinking. My goodness, the gerund. Is that, some, is that something you practice in your own communication? Are, have no. you been using? Or that's, it's because I guess you have that idiomatic kind of convention that sort of we're uh, I, I, susceptible I speak, to. I, I speak English in normal ways in which English is spoken. I okay. don't. I, I think David Bohm also did, but when he was, when he was in, with people who were trying to understand the quantum world, which he lived in, I mean, which his academic life was in, I'm sure he used gerunds a lot. And I, I sometimes, I may use them a little bit more often <laughs> than, than other people. If you use nouns, you will inevitably substantialize. And it's, it's interesting that a good many nouns are being turned into verbs. For example, we used to speak of the pastor of a church. And now people talk about pastoring a church. 
And that wasn't true 30 or 40 years ago. So I, I think that there is a certain pressure from reality to use gerunds, and I certainly want to yield to that pressure. Okay, thank you. My guest, if you just joined us, is Dr. John Cobb, practitioner of, and actually one responsible for the further development of process theology, and a leading affiliate in the Living Earth Movement, a new organization recently launched that we'll talk about in our time together. So how, help us understand where we can see the established leaders in the world around us that you could say this person practices process theology so we can see it uh -huh. see them and now there i am i'm trapped in the in the it uh -huh. <laughs> yes i'm course. i'm very trapped i'm very conventional yes yes well I, I i don't think that we can speak english without implying the primacy of nouns yes um, but the hebrew language did not do that it's it's i think there's the difference between the world of sound and the world of vision and the uh, and the indo-european languages assume the primacy of the world of vision and if you study modern philosophy you'll see that when people talk about experience and the ground of knowledge they always talking about what we see but uh, hebrew tends much more to talk about what we hear or essence, or is it essence, as you said? It's the word of God. And so we don't ask so much about, I don't mean that you'll never, I mean, of course they include seeing, and of course everybody includes hearing in some way or other. But if you just think about what the world of hearing is like, it is processive. But yes. if you just try to slice it and think, at this moment, what am I hearing? You'll be hearing some sounds, but in reality, you're hearing part of a musical. And, and the music takes time. When you are looking with your eyes, you can, you can see something that is just the way it is right now, and you don't have to connect it with the past and the future. But if you're having a conversation and you just take one momentary slice, you get zero. You can't just add together those slices. So Hebrew thought was always about, it was mostly the Bible is a book of stories. And of course, stories can be biographical, historical, and all of those things. But the modern university is going more and more to only vision. Stories, history is disappearing. And if you think of hearing, you, the uniqueness of everything, because it cannot be separated from its context. But science can't deal with things that cannot be repeated. And uh, so the, the world of hearing, you can't get to that way. Well, I hope this gives you some idea of that these are very, very foundational elements. Absolutely, I'm hearing that. Hearing that, <laughs> and that is, that is the way to take it, is hearing about uh, right. how foundational, and it, it's remarkable. And you, you're you speaking with a kind of, a sort of a poetic flair in some instances. I'm just uh, really quite, uh, I'm really, really quite taken by this opportunity to, to have you explain that. And it gives, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a manual for 
how it, uh, you're giving us the manual for how to be more effective, more see our individual selves in our expansive, the expansive potential in our individual selves and, and, and in the, making some important things that need to have happen, happen. And of course, the, in, the, in the Bible as a whole, of course, the, the Bible is a library. And so when, when we say the Bible says this, that it says all sorts of mutually distinct and even contradictory things. But the Hebrew, the Jewish teaching was that love is primary. And uh, love is not something that you can understand between billion balls. Love is something deeply, it's feeling. The world is made up of feelings, not even ideas are a kind of feeling. Thinking is a form of feeling. And loving is what makes life meaningful. Someone who is not loved by anyone is, can hardly endure it. If you know you are loved, you can love others. And um, Jesus, of course, quotes the standard. Hebrew teaching that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And of, above all, we love God. And of course, that God loves us. And what Jesus taught that was distinctive in his own, in his own view, he was being distinctive. And I don't want to say no one else ever, ever thought this or said this. I haven't studied enough to know. But Jesus said, love your enemy. And that is something that is profoundly countercultural. The American culture is not based on loving enemies. Once we've decided someone is our enemy, we don't try to understand them. We are just interested in putting them down, conquering them, destroying them. So it's a very profound difference. But uh, it's very interesting to me that, I mean, Jesus thought the solution to the problems of the Jews in relation to the Romans was to love them. And in recent times, a Hindu read this from Jesus and learned it and practiced it. And whereas Jesus did not succeed in getting the Jewish people to practice, he succeeded in getting the Indian people to practice it and get their independence of Great Britain. The love of enemy won the independence of India. And Martin Luther King learned from Gandhi and of course also from Jesus. He, he was a Christian and he certainly knew Jesus' teaching. And he made enormous changes in the whole understanding of race around the world. Race does not play the role that it played before Martin Luther King. So Jesus' teaching of loving the enemy is not sentimental, but it's extremely countercultural. There's no culture that has taught that. And is that what you mean by process theology? Is that a tenet of process theology? The part that's getting missed in the uh, conventional practice of Christianity? Yes, I would say that, of course, a lot of process theologians don't love their enemies either. I'm not trying to claim, but, okay. but I think we all understand that that is what we are called in that direction. 
So I'm looking at what leaders, where we can identify process theology being practiced by a leader we know. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I would say Martin Luther King and, and uh, Gandhi were the two great leaders who practiced what process theology teaches, but that doesn't mean they studied that particular philosophy. Okay. What, how about Desmond Tutu? To some extent? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There are others. Sure. But I, you see, I don't want to make the claim that only people who study process the, process metaphysics have embodied what process metaphysics calls for. I, no, and I understand that. And, I, yeah. and that's, it's an important point to clarify. So, but, um, but, I, but I think if you have studied process metaphysics as I'm, in the f- kinds of things that I'm talking about, you will recognize the kind, the rare political actions that really express it. You see, the question about Jesus was not whether he was divine or not. The question was whether he was the Messiah or not. I mean, I'm talking about when he was alive, when you were talking about historical reality. And uh, he, those who understood that he was the Messiah did not take part in the continuing revolts. The Jewish revolts against Rome finally led to the expulsion of all Jews from Israel and the complete destruction of Jerusalem. So Jesus failed, but his teaching and his ideas turned out to have really practical implications. And of course, I think there are lots of people, you, you know people who are very forgiving, no matter what others do to them, they don't react with at the attempt to do something back. I don't want to try to name these people, but parents in relationship to their children. I think that's where we find it most. But of course, there are parents who are very judgmental and harsh and think the important thing is to make their children do the right thing. But what really matters is whether the child really feels the parent's love and he feels the parent's love even at that moment when the child may be doing something they know the parents don't like, it's against the parents. But I think we find, I'm not at all inclined to say the United States is a Christian nation, but nevertheless, there are elements of Christian teaching which have affected us in a positive way. And there are lots of people who understand that Mutual love, mutual support, working together non-judgmentally gets things done that you can't do by pushing people around, forcing them to do things. So, so I, I, think, I think the distinctiveness of being a process thinker is that one can articulate the reasons that what works is not what we are taught to work. We are, we are taught works by economists. It's, it's very interesting that the teaching in management schools is very different from the teaching in business schools. Management, to, to make the, the company function well, you have to have great sense of community within the workers. Just the opposite, you see, from the competitive notion. 
I think though they're mixed though, they're conflated, the schools of business and management. So I'm oh. confused by knowing what's the charter of any of those schools in our university system in the US. Yes, well, I haven't done any personal study. I've just been interested in, mm -hmm. when I talked with people in the field of management, they understood what I was talking about immediately. Yes. But people in departments of economics, and I think that kind of plays a role in the business schools also. So I'm going to sort of roll back my question then when I'm, the construct of process theology sort of leaders that are known, it's really, it's a practice that is fluid in every individual. It could be adopted in a gesture, in a practice, in a commitment involvement. So it's, um, I'm, I'm going to, uh, consider myself schooled <laughs> it's it's we it's think a, yes we think that everybody lives in that world nobody it really lives as an isolated individual related to others competitively but it's too bad to teach people that they live in a world that they don't live in it does not lead to human happiness or to the well-being of society so we think we're just telling you what you already are and already know. Okay. But the university works against us. Letting that sink in, everybody. <laughs> so for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. John Cobb, practitioner of and, uh, and actually responsible for the further development of process theology and a leading affiliate in the Living Earth Movement and we're recording this on March 2nd, 2022, this special podcast. So uh, let's, uh, it's trend, yes, you were gonna no, say? I wonder if we could just tell them where they could get more information. Oh, we're, we're gonna do that in a question. Oh, I'll get that. Okay. <laughs> so I'd like for you to sort of give us, to guide us how process theology is a, a, a construct for activists, how it informs you as an activist, because you are stepping up as we're going to talk more about the Living Earth Movement. How yeah. does that guide your activism, the process theology? Well, I, I think that one of the most important answers to that question is that for process thinkers, human beings are like other things. We don't, there is not the human being that is infinitely valuable and everything else that has no value except as it is useful to human beings. Every animal is a value for itself and for others. And even every cell of every living cell is value. And therefore, when we realized, when it was brought to our attention, and I don't think process theologians can make any claim to have been the initiators of this, when it was brought to our attention that we were destroying the possibility of a good future for our children by destroying the natural world. And this was especially in the late 60s. Uh, people, especially those who were teaching ecology in universities, were bringing out this information. Anybody who had been influenced by process thought would respond immediately in a positive and understanding way. The modern world was based on a radical dualism, which is simply false. And it has led us to behave in ways that are extremely damaging. So 
almost anybody who would call themselves a process thinker would say, we need to understand ourselves as part of the natural world, not apart from the natural world. And at this point, we agree with the Pope. Laudato Si makes these same points. Again, you see, I don't, I think this is a natural way of thinking. I think the child comes into the world feeling kinship with the puppy. He has to learn, he has to be taught. It doesn't really matter what happens to the puppy. The puppy's only meaning and importance is that it's a playmate for the child. That you have to teach him, that the puppy is another center of life and another experiencer who is, can be happy or sad just as I can be happy or sad. That, that's what the child assumes. So it's, it's, it's simply a matter of describing our actual experience and the world more accurately and opposing those impositions upon it that have tried to say human beings are the only value. So that's one of the major, major contributions. That is not that we have invented something or that we're saying something people don't already know, but we put into a systematic context, an alternative systematic context to the modern systematic context. And I think therefore we're just more realistic. That's what we want to be. We're not trying to impose something. And I think people are happier if they love each other than if they compete with each other all the time. Of course, this competition has its role. I mean, in sports, two teams compete against each other, but very rarely is there any personal animosity involved. If there is, that spoils the sport. So that there are kinds of competition that are perfectly healthy and desirable, but that's in the context of sportsmanship. Sportsmanship means you're competing with it. Yes, you're competing with the other side, but you're in full agreement about how you compete and you compete in ways that are really cooperative. I can go on, but we are accused of saying very obscure and difficult things, but they're only obscure and difficult because we have been taught not to think that way. Right, right, the, the kind of pile up of the illusions of what the essences are that, that, that comprise our universe. So you, to, you have to dismantle so much you have, to, uh, have to get to, to your fundamental thinking. That's right. It's a huge exercise. Mm -hmm. I start, as the good Buddhist nuns say, start where you are. I start, I'm starting where I am with you, Dr. Cobb. <laughs> yes, well, I, I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about process theology. Another thing, we don't distinguish theology from science the way so many people do. The modern world teaches you to put everything in a compartment. And we say, if, we, if science is really going to tell us about nature, there's going to be a spiritual element in it. But if the Christians are really going to be talking about the world that they live in and the actual human relations and what we can do, the more science they know, the better. We, we want the truth and we want reality and we don't think we get it when we compartmentalize. That when I'm criticizing the university, I'm 
criticizing academic disciplines because you can spend your whole life studying some particular issue in biology and never even think about what life is. That is compartmentalization. You just, that's the embodiment of it. Oh. And so, so we have a lot to oppose <laughs> in the way in which the modern world works. Unrolling, just un unpacking, dismantling. Yes. What an exercise. Well, I, I want, while we're together, to give you a chance, Dr. Cobb, to talk about the launching of the Living Earth Movement and listeners can open up all kinds of details on this brand new website by going to livingearthmovement.eco or eco, livingearthmovement.eco. And so talk about what is this charter with, unless that is a very limited construct, you can tell me what's a better way to ask my question. I'm asking you. <laughs> okay, thank you very, very much for giving me the, this chance. I was awakened in the late 1960s to the fact that human beings are living, and the term we usually use was unsustainably. That means if we keep on doing what we're doing, human civilization will collapse. We will have destroyed the basis of our culture and out of our life, food production, everything. Well, to me, that seemed to be more important than anything else. And I have been working for 50 years and more to uh, provide an alternative. So we have to deconstruct a lot, but I think we have to construct also an alternative way of thinking and an alternative way of living. Most of the time I have been at the margin and I don't, the margin's a good place to be. I've enjoyed living at the margin. I've been at the margin of the church. I've been at the margin of the university. I've been at the margin of the culture because even though people in some ways would say, oh yes, we know environment is important and all that. There was very little readiness to think radically about another way of being, another way of organizing ourselves, another way of educating our children, so forth and, and so on. At the time I was awakened to the unsustainability of our practice, modern practices, I didn't even think about climate, but it turned out that the effect on climate was the one that hit most people hardest, soonest. So these days, climate change is what the focus is on. Now, destroying the topsoil is just as important. And uh, poisoning our oceans, is the, there are lots of other things we're doing that will have similar consequences. But right now we talk about the weather and climate is very, very important. So, so now there are more people who are asking questions about, well, what does theology have to say about what we should be doing? What does philosophy have to say? What does biology have to say? So there is a possibility of getting a lot, much larger group of people to work together. And of course, for a global issue, we, it's not, can't just be individuals working with individuals. We have been working with Chinese 
And they are very receptive to process thought because their language doesn't have to be overcome. Their language puts the emphasis on the verb rather than on the noun. So no university in the United States has a center for process studies, but 35 universities in China do. You don't have to do so much deconstruction with the language, with the thought patterns in China. And I, I think that the community that process folks in China and process folks in the United States have is the kind of cooperation that the world needs. But getting governments to cooperate is a very different much more difficult matter. I think that Glasgow was a great success, but still we know that even if all the countries do what they promised, which is not likely, we're still heading for a disaster. The only solution that I see is a cooperative relationship between the United States and China in giving leadership to the rest of the world. So if that's the only way we can avoid destroying our planet, it seems to me that's more important than all the competition and mutual attacks and all the bad things that both countries do to the other and so forth and so on. And there is some possibility, it's not, not impossible. Biden was asking China to cooperate on the climate. But he said China is, he told China, you are our number one enemy, now cooperate. That's not a good way to persuade people to cooperate. So we are, Biden has stopped using that language of China being the number one enemy. And China joined the Glasgow conference. And there is a committee led by high level people in both China and the United States working toward cooperation. But at the same time, as long as enmity is the primary relationship, the cooperation will not save us. So we want cooperation among all nations for the sake of developing what we like to call an ecological civilization. And we've tried to spell out what that would be. And, and I, if you're curious, you can find important, I mean, major documents about that. But we also need to create a climate within the United States that people will be open to the possibility of cooperating with China. That doesn't mean China doesn't do things we can criticize. It doesn't mean we don't do things we can't criticize but it means we have to find ways of working together to save the world. So that's where we begin. We, what we want is a living earth. What we want is cooperation among all nations. What we want is human beings everywhere, loving human beings everywhere. There are lots of other things we want. But right now, just so that we will not within the next five years cross some lines that will be, uh, we can't go back. Right now, there's still a lot we can do to prevent the weather from getting totally destructive. A few years from now, there won't be. So we, we feel we've got to focus upon accomplishing what 
might make a real difference for our descendants. And of course, at the same time, we don't ignore all the other problems of the world, but, but that's what the Living Earth Movement takes as number one hope for the planet, the reversal of, of dominant policies, which are the number one threat. A nuclear war between the United States and China would end any possibility of having a healthy world. And yet our policies tend to be heading in that direction. So we think we need to identify the most important problems facing us and act directly on them, not to ignore the other problems. So it was out of some efforts to make a difference in that relationship that the Living Earth Movement was born and we are hoping we could change the climate. If our only political question is how we can damage China the most, we might even succeed in damaging it a lot, but that will not help our children. It won't help our grandchildren. Our great -grandchildren. Did you say damaging China? Did you mean damaging climate? Oh, no, no. I mean, our major policy is not directly. The United States and, and China are the two countries doing the most damage to the climate. Okay, I, no, I just wasn't sure what, we, uh, what I heard there, so I'm- No, 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 I meant the, the people who want to emphasize that China is our enemy. For that, yeah, what okay. They, what I, they want to do is to weaken China, or, okay. or what? I mean, I, that, that's what I think the CIA wants to do. You call China our enemy, I think you want to damage it. Okay, thanks for that clarification. So creating a, a, an organization anew is taking on a charter, it's, it's sort of tweaking the charter of existing organizations. Is there a way that a new organization can coalesce with those that are reasonably in an alliance with you that can make your essence more impactful. Is that, is that what you're attempting to build here, Dr. Cobb? If, if, we, if we have to, I mean, just our little group is not gonna make a difference in itself, you're quite. But I think that there are literally hundreds of NGOs in this country that want to have a living earth and are willing to make serious efforts in that direction to work for cooperation among nations rather than enmity. So yes, we are, you understand, we've only, we, we, we had a launching party last week. Of course, we've been doing things before that, but as, as an organization, we've only had a name okay. for two weeks. <laughs> okay, okay. So this is the very beginning. But yes, absolutely, yeah. our, our task, and we already have lists of, of organizations we want to cooperate with. Thank you for making that point. Well, I certainly can. Uh, I think that one could accelerate that coalescing. I'm, I keep thinking of Catherine Hayhoe, a yeah. leading Earth System scientist with her evangelical roots that bringing her along with this brings a lot of people along with her. So um, that's right. among, I'm sure you are you personally acquainted with Professor Hayhoe? 
I, I think I would have to say not personally. Of course, I'm acquainted with that. Okay, you are. Okay, good. Well, it's not dated, but the, the letter that you are sending to both President Biden and President Z, I don't know if you want to bring up, you're talking about this initiative and was there something in that letter and is there a date? Has it been sent? Something oh, no, no. About the, the letter was sent some time ago. And uh, the amazing thing was that, you know, there's a specific request to Biden to, to stop using enemy language because I knew what enemy language used by the U.S. was doing to policies in China. And then there's a specific request to China if Biden will make any gesture whatsoever to recognize that Biden is doing himself political damage by saying anything less, I mean, anything positive about China or even seeking to cooperate. And uh, the letters were sent and Biden did make a, in a speech say he would not be calling China an enemy, would be calling China a competitor. And uh, she did join the Glasgow conversations and they did organize a, a joint committee. So whether, the, whether my letter helped to get things started or not, I, I'll never know. But it is worthwhile working out. I mean, there's something going on to support. It's not just a matter of opposing what's going on. And uh, I, I think that there are, are lots of people in both countries that would much prefer cooperation to a very dangerous enmity. We, so, we see what enmity has done in the Ukraine. That's, I did want to ask about that, that the cooperation around this particular invasion into a sovereign country, if I think most people agree, there is cooperation that really is an extraordinary kind of activation in for, for up to maybe two centuries. So I don't, I'm just sort of a, calling out, a, a, it's a bit arbitrary, but I think it's really a quite, uh, it's been a feat of cooperation. Do you think, Dr. Cobb, that that portends opportunities for what Living Earth Movement would like to do, could tag uh, on to right now? This is the moment. Well, we don't want to organize around war. <laughs> we want to... I'm, I'm talking about cooperation, not the yes, war part, exactly. the cooperation part. I, I think that I think many things are happening right now. I mean, and in the last two years, that had not happened before. I, I think the possibility of organizing lots of people and and governments around cooperation is greatly improved. I think that the enmity between nations and groups of nations is also heightened. So we are a genuine crisis when enmity is heightened and people threaten each other, nations threaten each other. And there's more interest in weakening the other than there is in jointly strengthening both. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the recognition of 
the human beings everywhere need a healthy world. And these two things are both happening now. I think the threat of mutual destruction is greater than it has been for years. And I think the possibilities for uniting to deal with our common threats is greater than it has been for years. So we, we want other people to appreciate both, both the threat and the promise and then join in organizing around the promise. And we'd be glad for someone else to take the lead in the organizing around the promise and we will just be tagging along. But right now, it's hard to see who is, in, who is doing it. So we, we'll do what we can and maybe we can persuade someone else with greater capacity to give leadership to take over. That would be great. So many analogies and thoughts come to mind and whether Ukraine is giving us maybe a, a, like a new diplomatic vocabulary comes to my mind, this thought, as well as the urgency of climate if it is incongruous with the kind of pace of how diplomacy functions. That's a second thought. And the third thought that I have is when things get done diplomatically, it's because there's back channels and there's formal channels. So you're invoking the formal channel of reaching the heads of state for the US and China. And I'm wondering if the living earth movement is also about creating or activating, tapping into back channels for climate response. So well, it pick any one of those as a kind of not exactly easy way to close the interview, but there, the, all those kinds of diplomatic sorts of trends are an opportunity and a responsibility all at once. Well, the, the process movement as a whole has always been using the back channels. This is the first time that any branch of the process movement has really tried to do anything with governments. So I, I would say back channels are our specialty. <laughs> okay, that is what Living Earth Movement is, is the back channel. But, I know. but this particular organization says we can't wait for the back channels to work. We've got to try to prevent the diplomacy from collapsing completely. Okay. I guess what I want to close with is for listeners to take note of what the long view the richness of the long view of a 97 year old life and how, yes, we, we bring along young minds and we keep in top of mind the richness, the depth and the range of 97 year old long view looking thinking as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Cobb for this really richly edifying time with you and good luck with the Living Earth Movement. And I'll remind listeners, the Living Earth Movement is recently launched, can be found on the web at livingearthmovement.eco. Thank you so much, Dr. Cobb, for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Next week, we'll hear from Ellen Mackey and her fellow Metropolitan Water District women unionists who will bring us up to date on what is taking place at that workplace. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. Yes.